Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. Um, I apologize this week that we don't have someone with a particularly mellifluous or euphonious accent in the studio today. It's sort of more gritty and masculine. But we're happy to have in the room my friend and the author of the new book, The Immoral Majority, Ben Howe. Ben, welcome aboard. Welcome. This is your first time on, right? Good day, Jonah. No. <laughs> yeah. Don't. No no fake accents. Okay, okay sorry. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the, no, this is not my first time here, actually. I filmed uh, you. Right, but your first time on oh, this on podcast. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so, um, I mean, I know all about the other stuff that we do, you know, in the catacombs <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Um, so... Uh, for listeners who can't tell, I'm I'm also I'm still fighting this crazy summer cold thing, um, and had a fairly emotional day yesterday, which I can tell you about later. But um, let's just just dive right into it. You wrote a book called The Immoral Majority. There's this fantastic blurb from this guy Jonah Goldberg on the back of it. What's it about? Well, you know, for me, the story kind of starts in 2011. Uh-huh. You remember Donald Trump coming to CPAC, and yep. everybody was kind of treating it like a joke. Uh, he ran for, well, he toyed with running for president for a little bit. Barack Obama kind of embarrassed him with the birth certificate. He dropped out. It was a big joke. And beyond Romney asking for his endorsement, it seemed like that was it. Yeah. This is settled now. That's done. And when he came down the escalator in 2015, I think I just kind of expected the same response. Um, it obviously didn't go that way. People got very excited about him. And at first, I would say most of my objections were really kind of Republican-focused, regular, I'm not sure this guy's going to be conservative type stuff. Right. But in June of 2016, I I had seen that a lot of evangelical leaders were endorsing him. It wasn't particularly surprising necessarily that an evangelical might vote for a Republican. It's actually very normal. What was becoming apparent was that there was a almost a prophetic nature with the way that they were approaching him. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't figure out why like why that was necessary. They didn't do that with Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hadn't done that with other candidates. So why would they suddenly do this about the one candidate who seemed the least likely to fit any kind of mold of biblical prophecy? Right. Uh, and it started to occur to me that it was like an overcorrection of sorts. Like in order to be able to shift so dramatically on the questions of character that they had kind of made a huge name for themselves of in the 90s with Bill Clinton. Right. There had to be something larger. And so the evangelical leadership was pushing the idea that this was sort of a vessel of God's will here on earth. Uh, Which is like your point being that's that's the only way you could sell it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. exactly. You know, I mean, if, if a guy with not to uh, Donald Trump is not the devil, but if a guy with horns and a tail and hooves shows up. The preacher's got to figure out an, an argument other than, I like the cut of his jib, right? right. <laughs> you, you can't just uh, come out with standard Republican wants um, and say this is transactional because, you know, the whole movement, the whole evangelical movement starting – it's been around for 100 years. They've been involved in prohibition and all kinds of stuff. But the modern movement, sort of moral majority, late 70s and so on, Right. the whole idea was they didn't want a transactional relationship. Like they were saying, what we want is moral leadership we can believe in. Mm-hmm. Originally, kind of partyless was the was the idea. Right, it sort of starts politically with Jimmy Carter in a right. way. Right, Jimmy Carter was the first president to say he was born again, mm-hmm. that he had a personal relationship with Jesus and all mm-hmm. that. And I, I, I'm not I'm not trying to be dismissive of the theolo- theological points here. I'm just yeah. as a out- guy outside that particular fishbowl. That's how you know I characterize it. 
And then very quickly, they all migrated to Reagan for right. Well, you know, looking back, I think at the time that might have seemed very um, principled. Like, right. hey, they're not about a party. You know, they're about uh, they're about what what it is they're looking for policy wise and morality and so on. But now when I look back, it, it looks more like they started out saying, yes, we want to go with somebody who's got this moral character. And we believe he represents this because he's an evangelical like we are. And then they didn't like the policies. And then we're like, yeah, you know, forget that. Let's go with transactional and it's fine. But they continued to speak the language of morality. And that really became prominent in the 90s, as you, you well know. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Dobson and Ralph Reed and... Um, Jerry Falwell, senior son, Jerry Falwell, Jr., uh, you know, all these evangelical leaders coalesced around him. What was so striking and unavoidable for me was that it was not uh, it wasn't even transactional, like the way Falwell Sr. talked about it with Reagan. Mm -hmm. It was an embrace of all of his worst traits. Mm -hmm. uh, And they turned him into this David figure uh, where his flaws were now uh, uh, part of a redemptive arc. Right. That I'm sorry doesn't exist as far as I can tell. I, I, you know, you would think a redemptive arc that's going to inspire people and whatnot is going to have some signs of it other than, no, I never ask for forgiveness. It, it just seems like that yeah. is antithetical to it. By definition, arcs bend, right, <laughs> towards something, and there seems to be no bending. No, that's right. <laughs> and um, I think the moment for me was June, uh, because after that summit where a particular gentleman, um, Walno, who's a uh, conservative evangelical in Texas, I can't remember his first name right now, mm-hmm. um, he had he had declared that he had gotten a message from God that Trump was the Isaiah 45 president, the sort of biblical reincarnation of King Cyrus, okay. who was a uh, you know pagan uh, leader who God used to bring the people of Israel you know back to their homeland. Um, I. He called him the uh, Isaiah 45 president because Isaiah 45 was a verse about Cyrus. Uh-huh. I don't know if he knew that the numbers were put in later uh, to the Bible, but, yeah. you know, still. Um, so Baby at, steps, dude. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, after the summit, Falwell Jr. took a picture with Trump, and there was a playboy behind him on the wall with mm-hmm. Trump on the front. Right. You know. And I just immediately thought of when I was a kid because in 1984, my parents took me to a march with Falwell's father. Mm-hmm. Marching against Playboy. Right. And it, I don't care if, if Trump has a Playboy magazine. It's not surprising at all. It doesn't, I'm not getting the vapors over it. It's sure. just such a departure. Right. And it was just too too much for me to not say something about it. All right. So uh, and, and we'll get deeper into this, but so I have this longstanding theory. It's not an all-explanatory theory. It's just a partial theory that explains part of the political dynamics around Trump. And it's that um, – and I, I think it works in a lot of different areas of, of Trump world. Normally when you pressure a normal politician – to when you, normally when you get, try to get a politician to behave in a certain way, you praise him when he does the stuff you like and you criticize him when he does the stuff you don't like. It's really pretty simple, right? And Trump does not respond to criticism, right? Um and he responds. He just doesn't respond well. Right. Doesn't respond well. Right. And he doesn't. And he his response to praise has to be personal. It has to be about how great he is. Right. And all that. And so part of the problem with that is that 
that could work just fine if the praise was in private, right? If it was just sucking up. I mean, Washington is uh, it is like a hive of remora, you know, the fish that stick to the sides of sharks. People suck up here for a li- I mean, literally for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, they get paychecks for sucking up. And the problem is, is that the most effective way to suck up with Trump is to actually do it on TV or do it in front of large crowds. And you have to be wildly effusive for it to really break through with Trump. And so a lot of the Christian coalition, Christian, you know, evangelical Christian stuff with regarding to Trump, the problem was in part, it seems to me that he, he needed to hear you praise him in front of audiences. And so it would have been fine in terms of the public posture of a lot of leading religious figures if the pray if they called him the king of the Jews in a private conversation, right? Yeah. But you, the problem is, is you judge movements by what they say, mm-hmm. by what they prioritize, and when you call him king of the Jews in front of a huge audience or on Twitter or on cable television, that has the natural effect of of telling people that we have we are bending our theological and our analytical and our philosophical point of view towards this guy, and I wonder. Like, I know a lot of guys on Capitol Hill. I know a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill. I know a lot of Republicans around Washington who wildly praise Trump in public and then away from the camera say horrible things Same. about him, right? Yeah. And quite nervous, a lot of them. Yeah. So part of my question is, is like, is that same phenomenon at work in the religious community or how much of these, you know, there was that famous line, and Jack's going to have to get the bleeper button ready. Uh, there was that famous line with, Obama, where he says, you know, the thing about me is I believe my own bullshit. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, and that's that's an always a danger when you start spewing enough BS sincerely, is that you start to believe it. Trump clearly believes his own BS. There are lots of people who believe their own BS. But how much do, like, the Jerry Falwell Jr. types, who's not actually a pastor, right? He's, no, he's, he's not. He's like a hack lawyer who's got other problems. Um, My sister actually goes to Liberty University, and I, I've, I've told her before I'm going to start, you know, pulling her name out in vain and being like, she told me he's terrible. <laughs> but, uh, but when you have these conversations with, with, with members of the religious right, how much do they actually agree with you so long as it's not on the record? I think that um, they have been... This is this is obviously just my opinion. Sure. But... But you kind of... You swim in these waters I, a little bit. You've water, been having these conversations. At the, at the congregational level, mm-hmm. uh, they believe it. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I put a lot of that... Not that people are just lemmings and do whatever they're told, but, you know... You're faced with enough rhetoric, enough time about how if if you don't pull the lever for Donald Trump, you're legalizing abortion and killing babies. Mm-hmm. People start to get a little fanatical about making sure that they're on the right side of things. And so, yeah, I think a lot of those congregate level people believe that. But the leadership, it's a phenomenon I've actually seen in people like Ted Cruz, which is this sort of sneakier form of corruption with power because mm-hmm. when we think of corruption and power we think of really obvious things like you know twisting the mustache and uh you know stealing money and things like that but the these days one of the worst corrupting corruptions of power i've seen is people who believe their own bullshit. yeah using ted as an example he is an evangelical and using ted as an example um you know he was standing firm in 2016 and the idea was that uh, he wasn't going to, he, even at the RNC convention, he would not say, I'm endorsing this man, right. you know, and understandably, like put his politics aside, the guy insulted his wife and said his dad killed Kennedy. Yeah. But then he was know, just asking questions. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, the, the GOP kind of sent a 
message to him of sorts saying, hey, get on board or you're going to run into trouble getting money from us mm-hmm. when you're running for re-election. And from what I know of the guy, my guess is it was like, well, it's better if I'm here than if I'm not here. And see, I think that's a version of power corrupting. It. Oh, sure. When when you believe that you're, you've got to do whatever's necessary to create a good end and that the means have become secondary, um, especially when you're talking about yourself and you're saying, uh, you know, well, the good end is me. Like, right. I have to be there. So I think with a lot of these evangelical leaders, it's the same idea. They they have become so entranced with the idea that they're going to achieve these great conservative ends and some biblical ends too. if if you tie abortion directly to religion, which I don't think you have to. But Mm -hmm. if you do, those kinds of things as well. Um, And I think they're getting lost in it. I mean, Franklin Graham is a good example of that. There's this idea that their job as biblical evangelical leaders is to protect American Christian faith, mm-hmm. which isn't really the mission, nor was it the mission of of his father, Billy Graham, mm-hmm. um, just to pull the... I mean, Billy Graham, my God, I mean, how many overseas missions Absolutely. and rallies did that guy have? I mean, right. Well, and, and it, here's this, you know, there's a good story that I use as a comparison between Franklin and Billy, because Franklin does come across a little more meek mm-hmm. than the others, but I still find what he says to be objectionable. So his dad, you may remember, in the 80s went to Russia, and uh, he spoke to lots of religious leaders, a huge congregation of uh, Christians, and um, the media was asking him questions when he got back about whether or not he was being used, whether or not uh, there, were, there have been rumors there were KGB agents embedded with the Jewish leadership that he met with, mm-hmm. and, you know, were you being used? And his response was, oh, I, I don't know, but if that KGB agent needed to hear what I had to say that day, then I'm glad he was there. That's the right view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, meanwhile, uh, Franklin Graham describes Trump as the greatest defender of faith. But he's talking about American religious liberty, which is kind of a conflation. Yeah. Like our rights, our religious rights. Obviously, I support our religious rights. I don't want anybody to be forced to bake a cake before anybody freaks out. But that's not that's just. That's an American right Mm -hmm. uh, to do something. That's not the same thing as the faith. Right. But there's been this because of the way Trump's party works. There's been a nationalism that's been taking over even inside the evangelical movement. So that's how they're uh, talking the way they are about the border, talking about how the treatment of people, talking about what's going on, uh, supporting the fact that he called uh, Haiti a a Mm -hmm. Uh, all of these things are defensible now because they have tied their faith not only to republicanism, but to nationalism. And as a Christian, I just think that's the worst possible way to approach faith, which should be something that instructs you. If you're in the voting booth, certainly your, your faith should instruct you. But you shouldn't have a faith that's dictating to you that you have to pull the lever for God by voting for the Republican and voting for nationalist interests, et cetera, above your own religious considerations. Yeah, it's, my friend... David French, you know, he makes the point often, and he can read you, which I'm sure you can too, quotes from Franklin Graham about what he said about, say, Bill Clinton and yeah. what he says about Donald Trump. Oh, I'm going to be watching him today for yeah. David French. He's, he's got a debate going on. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, by the time this airs, that'll be yesterday. So, Oh, yeah. sorry. I just blew the whole no, thing. No, let's just, just hope there's not bloodshed because then it'll seem like we're too good about it. But, <laughs> but you know, David makes the point, you know, that – Christians are supposed to be that is a sign of righteousness, right? It is a sign of 
virtue and it gets you closer to being to heaven for you know i don't want to butcher the theology here but you're for being persecuted for your faith mm-hmm. right and for being a martyr to your faith mm-hmm. right yeah. and it, the point is the point is david puts it is is that the people who are bending the faith or at least the institutional priorities of allegedly faith-based institutions towards this political stuff they're doing so in a way that sort of says that the worst thing that could happen would be to be to feel any social pressure because of your faith when in right. fact like feeling social pressure because of your faith and standing up to it and bearing witness to it and all the rest is like a big part of the 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 program right and and i think that what you're talking about is you know i say this a lot um and i say it in the book too which is the culture war the whole idea of the culture war at least as it relates to conservative christians the thing i hear all the time especially in response to the book is um they're taking our christian values away right the culture is taking our christian values away and um I'm just like, you know, this isn't like a possession you have. Like, you're not, you don't take your Christian values and then keep it safely in your cupboard. Right. You know, if, if you believe in my faith, if you, if you subscribe to the same faith I do, then the idea here is that what we are talking about is something good and eternal. And so if anybody's losing something, it would be people who don't embrace it, right? It wouldn't be you. Right. You know, whatever you're losing is really inconsequential compared to what others would be losing. So you should be weeping for them, not yourself and the things you don't get. Well, but also, aren't you giving up some of your Christian faith if you are you have losing some of your Christian faith if you refuse to say what you believe for political reasons about a guy who's supposedly your defender? I mean, it's it's it's. It's not that it's being taken away. It's that you're surrendering it in this bargain, right? Mm-hmm. This sort of Faustian bargain um, for this guy. And you know, I, I hate to be sanctimonious about all any of this kind of stuff because it's um, well, but you, it's not my portfolio. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, but your point earlier is is exactly right. They didn't. It didn't have to be this way, right? You you could have you could have had a transactional. In fact, I would argue I do have a transactional relationship with Trump because you know I don't go out and say negative things about things I like. I'm happy the embassy was moved, um, right. you know, and I've defended things uh, uh, that he's done before. But I want Greenland, man. Right. When I want it. <laughs> I'm willing to use military action. <laughs> but uh, I it didn't have to be that way. But there's this. And I know that, like, you know, I'm not a, you were just saying it's not your portfolio. I'm not a psychologist. But it's just doesn't it just look like typical narcissist favorite child syndrome, you know, people trying to appeal to their narcissist dad to get him to approve of them. And so they know the way to talk to him. And now it's enraptured like so many in the movement who they're not lying to the, or they're not um, secretly consciously knowing they're actually against X, Y, and Z. They're convincing themselves that it is good. So yeah. they can impress Papa. Well, I, I think that's part of it. I mean, there's the, I think that's a big part of how the power dynamic works. You know, you just watch how Lindsey Graham, mm-hmm. you know, uh, figured out how to play this game. But I wonder sometimes if, if John McCain was just the only thing keeping him on a leash. It's possible. You know, um, it's very some of that stuff is very confusing to me. But, you know, the the it seems to me that the flip side of it also is that it's not so much like the favorite son thing. It's that there is this passive there's this sort of passive aggressive, the right term. I'm not sure. You know how like. Every family has got the cousin or the uncle or somebody who's either 
racist or <laughs> drug addict or crazy or easily set off and full of grievances about the lizard people. I mean, something, right? Mm -hmm. And But you have to invite them to Thanksgiving dinner. And then at Thanksgiving dinner... Since that's since that crazy uncle is the known quantity, and there's no changing him, if you say s deliberately set him off by saying how you know, I I I, I don't think LBJ had Kennedy killed, mm -hmm. then everyone gets mad at you, right? Not him, not him. Even though he's the guy who's throwing the turkey across the room and dropping his pants or doing whatever he's doing, it's. There is this tendency, it's, it's sort of a very variant of like the Bin Laden strong horse theories that people gravitated to the strong horse. Trump is Trump. It's mm -hmm. Aesopian, right? Trump is Trump. He's not going to change. And so therefore, anybody who criticizes him for the stuff that he's not going to change about. They're triggering him in a way. They're the, ba they're the ones who've done something wrong, right? right? And so. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, but I, I think that there's, some, there's another piece to that. There's which a, is, there are a lot of pieces. These which things. is that they don't just get mad at you for doing that. They also suddenly agree that LBJ absolutely did kill Kennedy. Right. You know, right. so they, like, they, they, they don't just say, uh, hey, uh, Uncle Joe can think what he wants. You know, why are you getting on his case? Which might have been an okay way to sure. handle it. Right. But instead, they go, Uncle Joe can think what he wants. And besides, LBJ did do exactly right. what he's saying. And then the next thing you know, you know, the whole family believes in it. Right. And, and also, like, you know, sort of like, and there's nothing wrong with him using the uh, mashed potatoes as a makeshift codpiece, mm -hmm. right? Because there's this there's this thing where, you know, I get in these arguments with people all the time, or I try not to get in them, but they drag me in, um, where they, where, uh, you know, I'll be asked by someone who's more pro-Trump than I am and all that, or more transactional, they claim to be more transactional, and I'll say things like, I like, I like a bunch of the policies, I love the judges, I love this, I love that, I dislike this, blah, blah, blah. I really wish he would tweet less. I think if he tweeted less, it'd be worth 10 points in the polls for him. And it's amazing to me from a lot of smart people who know are really smart in their areas of expertise and sometimes even in politics in general, they'll say, yeah, but, you know, the tweeting works for him. And I think, by what metric? I mean, literally, by what metric does it work for him? And people say, well, it, his base loves it. Yeah. Well, his base already loves him. Why is he still feeding the base when that's the one group he has on his side? He's the first president in American history who doesn't care about expanding his coalition mm -hmm. beyond his base. And that's that faith in himself too. He's just going to make everything so amazing that everybody's yeah, going to jump on board. But like, and, but, but why would some, I, and, and people say, well, you know, it's, it works for him. It talks to his base. Well, okay, but he, he's, he's already so got the base. Soft. And then they're like, they'll say, and it helps him get his message out. He's the president of the United States. President of the United States always can get their message out. And meanwhile, it's sort of like the salesman, who says, you know, look, yeah, I know I'm losing money on every sale, but I'll make it up in volume, mm -hmm. right? He he turns off more people than he attracts with his tweeting. I mean, I honestly think if you just stop tweeting and – but people have to believe – my point about it is, is that like the crazy uncle, since the crazy uncle is not going to change, you start bending – it's the power corrupting thing. You start saying, well, you it's know – more important that we – we cater this guy the tweet, and besides, the tweeting works for him. You know, when when Crazy Uncle Bob um, starts having sex with the turkey carcass, that works for him. And who are we to say it doesn't work? Look where he's gotten in his life by pluking turkey carcasses every Thanksgiving. <laughs> who are we to judge? You know, have you got? You know, are you rich? Because blah blah. And it's that kind of suspension of disbelief that you get when 
you have to rationalize your own decision for supporting the guy. You have to rationalize your own the, – the sacrifices that you've made to support the guy. And you just see it everywhere. And I would not mind at all a purely transactional argument. Mm-mm. No. Um, you know, there, there's so much defense of him. Uh, then, and that's mostly what I, I'm criticizing. I mean, yeah. like, honestly, if you took everybody that I quoted in the book, you probably quote Donald Trump the least. Right. Because it's, like you said, he's not, there is no pivot coming. Right. There's no redemption arc. This waiting is, for the pivot is like waiting for Godot. Right. right? It's just not going to happen. It's just Trump. This right. is just who he is. But because the defenses are reactive, because it's always Trump does something first, and then they figure out how to defend it. Right. It makes it so there's confusion sometimes you know, with me about what's real, you know, uh, it's like gaslighting or something. They're they're They defend him so often. And no matter what he does, that then when somebody comes to me and says, man, can't you see that he didn't do X, Y and Z? And it really isn't that bad. I'm like, I don't even know anymore, man. Yeah. Like you're you're telling me now that, that what North Korea is doing is great. Right. And, you know, you were telling me six months ago that uh, we needed to prevent this outcome at all costs and right. that Trump was the only one doing that. So how am I supposed to know what's real? I see those tweets sometimes in people's defense of it. And part of me wonders, are the people that directly surround him like sending whispering to other people? Listen, trust us. It'll it'd be worse if he didn't have this outlet. Like, just let him tweet out some stuff, because if he didn't, I promise you what's going to happen behind the scenes is going to be worse. Like, yeah, but you know, I, the way I, so the thing is, if he didn't watch the news. Right. Um, there's this great running joke in in the office where Creed, who's sort of the crazy Uncle Bob of the show, right? He keeps he thinks he has a blog, and it turns out that like they just basically set up a word document called www.http blah 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 Creed thoughts, and he's just typing onto a word <laughs> processor, and it never goes anywhere. If you could convince him that he was in fact tweeting when he wasn't. Um, that would be great, but yeah. that's not, not going to happen. So, all right, but let's get back because I don't want to do short in, in injustice or short shrift or, um, to your book, The Immoral Majority, available wherever books are sold, which is increasingly few places. So one of the things you hear a lot, and it's, it's, it's got an analog in just sort of the arguments about conservatism generally, mm-hmm. you know, um, is that young people, that Christianity has a real crisis in the United States because young people are checking out from it, um, because in in part because of the secular culture, but also in part because the brand of Christianity is bad. And um, uh, yeah, there's a New York Times article that just said why people hate Christianity. Yeah, and there's I mean conservatism has the same problem. I mean Kirsten Soltz, Kristen Soltis Anderson can walk you through the numbers about what young people think about conservatism and it's, it's, it's not great. Not, mm-hmm. not great, Bob. So, um, uh, where do you come down on the problems facing sort of, I hate talking about Christianity as a brand, but you know what I mean? No, well, yeah. no, I think the optics of any, you know, Jesus spent a lot of time. My dad, who's an apologetics professor and he, he teaches Hebrew and, uh, Greek and all the biblical languages. He, he says, you know, over, over time, like translation, has been improving in in a lot of ways. You know, mm-hmm. they're learning more. And he said that, you know, there's all these verses that people always refer to where talking about how to speak to people about faith and how to reach them and so on. And uh, he said, and a lot of times people will use words in the translations like, you know, kind and nice and stuff like that. And he was like, but that doesn't even come close to what it really says, which mm-hmm. is much more akin to meekness and trembling. Really? 
And, you know, so there's this idea that Jesus is speaking about in the New Testament saying you really need to be careful about how you present all of this to everyone else because that persecution I talked about is real. Don't help it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes to the optics, I think it matters, you know, a great deal. The interesting thing to me about the young people fleeing, first of all, they're fleeing for uh, sort of newer reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, the treatment of, you know, uh, gay community, mm-hmm. um, the rhetoric around the wall, mm-hmm. rhetoric around the border. Um, but what's fascinating to me is that in the nineties, you've got James Dobson, the, the, um, founder of focus on the family, very famous evangelical. And one of his most thorough, I, I quote him like crazy in this part in, mm-hmm. in, in the book, because he goes off about how the good economy has no excuse for the embrace um, and and basically endorsement of immoral behavior. And one of the things that he identifies as the problem is how many children look up to the president and what does that teach them about how boys should treat girls and you know mm-hmm. all of that. Just this is a problem. We need moral leadership, essentially defining the opposite of a transactional relationship. Right. And when you're talking about young Republicans, or excuse me, young evangelicals who 538 uh, surveys show are down to 61% approval mm-hmm. of of Trump or have a favorable view of it, um, people are connecting the dots between that and whether or not they're going to vote for him. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying there's not there's no evidence that their opinion of him personally is going to affect their vote. Mm. It's just answering the question. What do you think of Trump? Oh, I don't like him very much. Who are you going to vote for? Trump. Mm. And so the, I guess I, I would say the, the poetry here for me is Dobson was warning that if you give a pass like this to Bill Clinton, you're going to usher in a generation of people who have no consideration for the moral c- character of a leader. And then in a lot of ways, he helped usher it in. Yeah. By coming in and saying, never mind, let's do it transactionally. Yeah. You know, he didn't just change the tune. He changed the radio station. I mean, he changed everything. And um, I don't think that next year in 2020, because let's not forget the evangelical vote was actually divided at the beginning of the primaries. He lost to Ted Cruz in the Iowa yeah. caucuses. He didn't win any primaries, basically. Right. You know, or not a majority. He didn't win a majority of he the vote. He never got more than 50%. Not even of evangelicals. <laughs> it wasn't until that June meeting I talked about that there was a coalescence. Right. And then even in November, uh, there was a lot of discussion of hold your nose, you know, which I find, and I know you've probably experienced this, I find especially amusing, um, not just from evangelicals, but from conservatives in general. There was this post I found on Quora uh, where somebody had listed like every major person that you could think of on the right talking about Donald Trump mm-hmm. in 2015. People who are super fans of this guy now. Yeah. They weren't just saying I'm against this guy. They were saying this guy is a disgusting evil you know, he's going to destroy the moral fabric of this country and so on. They they just thought he was the worst thing ever. And so since that had been so recent back in 2016 when I wasn't going to vote for him, I got a lot of, hey, you know what, man? I respect that. I respect that opinion. I get it. Yeah. You know, I'm going to hold my nose, but I get it. Now, near three years later, that's not what they say. Yeah. They they, they say, you know, you are a, a sailboat. What is it Kurt says? A, uh, the, the 
steamboat that he's always talking about with uh, anybody who's so-called never Trump um, traitor, you know, yeah. all of this other stuff, um, because they're they've just forgot not forgotten. They've covered it all up. Yeah. What was said before. And it's inconvenient for anybody to still be saying the same thing because it's about the team. Yeah. I mean, I go back and forth about that. You know, I had Tim Alberta in here for his book, and I asked him what share of people on the Hill who talk about Comrade Trump delivering the greatest weed harvest we've ever seen east of the Urals. You know, what do, what do they say in private? And or how many of them believe that stuff in private? And he gave a really high number. I think it was like 50%. And I that's not my experience. But then again, you never know if people who talk to you change their views because they know what what where you're coming from and all this kind of stuff. But it is definitely true that you just look at some of my colleagues at Fox News or, you know, um, you know, some Congress people that the in twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen, first it was let's support him because it'll be fun, it's a joke, whatever, he's a battering ram for Ted Cruz, blah 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 blah. Bull in a China shop. Right, bull in a China shop. Then it was Move the Overton window. Move the Overton window. Then it was, you know, transactional stuff, and you got to hold your nose. Mm. And then a year later, it's like, you know, God put this man on earth to do these things. And, and it's just like, you know, and you feel like you walked out of the movie for five minutes to go to the bathroom, and you come back, and it's like everyone's, you know, <laughs> drank the Kool-Aid. I thought, I, was, I thought I was at a concert, and now I'm at church. I don't yeah. know what happened. And, um, and so, you know, part of the problem is, is that we are not, you know, so this, this gets back to where we started this thing is this is part of my problem is that we, as human beings, the transactional argument is not something that we are evolved to, to believe in, in terms of our leaders, right? Um, no problem with a transactional relationship with a plumber. Right. Right. You know, I don't care what you do with your life. Just yeah, yeah. Yeah. As long as you don't rip me off and I can trust you to be unsupervised for a few minutes in my house and you can fix my pipes, go for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the presidency, for good or for ill, we've imbued with this moral character, this leadership. People call it the father of the country stuff, which I hate. But uh, yeah, what's, what's interesting, though, by, about like the transactional examples of plumbers is, as you, you and I both said, I don't necessarily have a problem with some of the ways that Trump has fixed the sink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and 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 it's like, would you really like keep this plumber around if he kept cursing out your kids? Like, you'd right. probably kick him out, even right. though he was doing a great job on your right. sink. Or if he kept lying to you about what the estimates would be, right. or the work that he had done. You I know. think it's insane that some that I would think that that sort of thing matters at something at a much higher level with the presidency, right? Which tells me, and I got in a lot of trouble for saying this to the Atlantic, which tells me that that. That whether or not they hold, I, I'll never know if they really thought they were holding their nose in 2016. The Christians, uh, uh, the non-Christians, anybody on the right, I will never know if they were really holding their nose. What I know is that they aren't now because they like it. Mm-hmm. They, the very things they said they were holding their nose over are their favorite features, and I have I have battled this with a lot of um, the. Trump legions, um, you know, in on radio shows. I went on Dennis Prager's show. You know, mm-hmm. I went on with Kirk Slichter. I went like I, I I go on all of the you know territory to have these debates, and I don't they they agree. Mm-hmm. They're like this, this is not a bug; it's a feature. Yeah, and they they uh, this includes. Look at the Christians that got upset that he was saying GD, mm-hmm. and I was asked like why because that happened the week the book came. 
I think it was the week the book came out. Yeah, it was. And they were they were saying, uh, you know, why why are they suddenly? Does this mean because they're always looking for a signal? You know, in the media, they're like, is this does this mean evangelicals are moving away from him? And right. I'm like, no, they're they're scolding him. They're saying we don't care what you say to anyone else, but when you say that, you're saying it to us. Don't right. say it to us, but do whatever you want yeah. anywhere else. Um, so I I don't know how else to conclude, but that when you've got a president who he appointed a lot of judges, that's great, but not really that much more than George H.W. Bush did in his one term. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got some tax cuts. Great. We get those all the time. There's been no meaningful spending cuts. I'm not happy with a lot of stuff that's happened in foreign policy. Um, he's unfortunately moving the Overton window on tariffs, which I think is a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, it's like, you know, complex agree and disagree aspects and so on. So then why are people so excited about him? Yeah, see, because that, of what he does. Yeah, so that's 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 the point I was getting at is that we are not wired to say, you know, Bartok, king of my tribe, is good at hunting water buffalo and killing the Thingians, um, uh, but he's a bad person, right? We have to think that our leader, that Bartok, is a great person in every regard, <laughs> and. Um, I want to make a skit about that. <laughs> and so that's the thing is that what what can be, a, you know, it's a binary choice. It's transactional arguments in the beginning. Over time, we rewire our programming to say, no, 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 no. All those bugs that I thought were bugs, they're now features. Mm-hmm. And compounding that is that you get all this signaling because political professionals know that the way – to get stuff out of Trump is to praise what were once considered bugs as features and to talk about how he's a genius and he's the greatest deal maker in the world and you have to flatter him. And, you know, I understand why senators do it. Like Lindsey Graham is trying to get reelected and he's trying to get some legislation or some policy victories, whatever. And politics is, is a horrid business in that regard. And you have to say these kinds of things, but, but intellectual or theological or religious leaders aren't supposed to change their arguments based upon the guy who's in the mm-hmm. Oval Office, mm-hmm. and particularly the religious ones, right? And um, and the problem, I, I think part of the corruption that we've gotten is that you know, a lot of conservative institutions basically became owned by their mass fundraising base or their mass donor base or their mass customer base. So that's why talk radio was one of the first things. Once the talk radio audience liked Trump, all of a sudden, all these DJs like Trump. And once the um, the mass donor base for certain institutions on the right went that way, so did those institutions. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not saying that money explains all of it, but it's it's this – but money is a die marker for status and for uh, fame and popularity among the people that you care about. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's corrupting, yeah. right? You know? Well, and I think people – in their everyday lives, they do the same types of corruptions that we're talking about. Because, you know, you'll have somebody who spent his entire adult life chasing his dream of wealth. Halfway through, he's been chasing it so long and so ineffectively that he's also racked up mountains of debt and, and is having he's struggling to survive. And eventually it just becomes, I, you know, I have to make this money to get out of the hole I've created for myself. It's not that I love money. 
It's that I, I need to fix these things. That's all. I just need to fix these things. Whatever I can do to get to the fixing is what I need to do. But he's still chasing money out of love for it, it, it you mm-hmm. know, love for for the idea that it's going to solve all of your problems. And the evangelical movement at large has for 40 years been making the argument, building the argument, that the uh, cultural problems that we were talking about are only fixed by a majority Republican Congress, Senate, yeah. and the presidency. And it boils down a lot of times to abortion in terms of rhetoric, in terms of how people argue that point. But that's not, and this surprised me writing the book, that's not really what it shows is most concerning to them. Because polls often leave out, you know, why people are answering a certain way. And so you look at the the polling of congregants and actually abortion falls below immigration, terrorism, Mm -hmm. Uh, econ- economic concerns, like just basic Republican fare. Mm-hmm. Those, a lot of the things you would associate with evangelicalism, the thing that people back when they're backed into a corner often cite. Well, what about abortion? I was the bottom of their list, and so a lot of people said, "Oh, so they're they're not they don't really care about it." No, they do care about it. It just doesn't have much to do with their lives. Yeah, they're not going to have an abortion, so it's just not their top concern. So, so much of all of this, everything that's happened with Trump, everything, the direction of the Republican Party. It just really boils down to good old self-interest, which can be a um, benign thing. Self-interest. I have a self-interest in eating. Mm. But when you're doing it as a Christian who supposedly is trying to, you know, uh, attract other people to your beliefs um, and you're doing it not only at the cost of that, but you're also indifferent essentially to the rest of the world. It's not self-interest. It's selfishness. And that's a lot of what I see. Is yeah. Self-interest. So I mean, the self-interest thing. I mean, I, I, I take your point. Um, and I hate sounding like Richard Hofstadter, who coined this phrase. I think he coined it. Maybe he got it from Adorno of uh, status class anxiety. You know, take your take the you know Trump caring about money or rich people caring about money. Most it's it strikes me that that again money is a die marker for most people who seem like they're crazy greedy mm-hmm. what they want is the status that comes with it right mm-hmm. they want you know, there's this character from from silicon valley who makes all of his makes these hugely important decisions this billionaire idiot billionaire guy because he wants to stay in the three commas the trace commas <laughs> oh, yeah, club yeah, right yeah, I've seen that. and it's like his quality of life does not change one iota by being only worth 950 right, million pressed right. only... <laughs> and and so many of and 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 Trump, you know, like people, people are losing their minds about uh, Trump making money off of his hotels and wanting to have a G8 or G7 summit at his place in, in Florida and all this kind of stuff. And I'm sure that money is part of his calculation. I, I, I think it is. I don't think you could rewire his brain not to care about money. But what he really cares about is status. He wants to hear his place is the best. He wants to hear that his stuff is the best. His, you know, he stopped being a real estate developer a long time ago. He's a marketing guy, and he cares about the status of it. And he gets to say forever, the G seven was actually held at one of mine. Yeah, yeah. And, and he wants bragging rights, right? And it's similar to, and so I, I think one of the reasons why, uh, you know, one of the things I see as an as as a sympathetic outsider, you know, I've been writing columns defending uh, the Christian right and evangelical Christians 
not on every single thing, but on the vast majority of things for most of my career. And I'm still very sympathetic, in part because I hate the way the mainstream media covers them as unthinking troglodytes, and I just know too many, and I have too much mm-hmm. respect for them, all the rest. But it seems to me that you don't embrace Trump from a position of strength, mm-hmm. right? You present... you. you if you believe the culture war stuff, and lots of people do, I certainly think there's a culture war going on. I don't think it's a civil war. I don't. I don't invest in it the way like my friend Dennis Prager does. That it is, um, you know, it's an existential thing. It's just not. Um, but it's an important thing. You know, how the kind of country we live in is an important question, and people have a right to have their opinions on it. But it seems to me that there is that that. It's sort of tied in with the white anxiety stuff. If you mm-hmm. tell people, you know, the left loves to talk about how, you know, whites are going to be a minority. We're going to get rid of white culture. We're going to end, quote unquote, white supremacy. We're going to do all of these things. Um, white are, white people are going to have to get in the back of the bus now. And then they're shocked that some some white people internalize that as a threat to them yeah. and a threat to their, you know, they, you know, and, and they start developing a white consciousness. You know, Sherry Berman has written some brilliant stuff about this is that the more you attack whiteness and white people as racist, the more you get them to embrace their white identity than they otherwise would. And it seems to me the same as an analog, something is going on there with the Christianity stuff is that for good reason, Christians in this, you know, uh, Christian conservatives in particular feel so besieged, mm-hmm. so victimized yes. that they need this champion guy to fight for them and all the rest. I, 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 like, uh, Dennis Prager was great. Uh-huh. I mean, I went on with him. Yeah. But he used the word savior. Yeah. I mean, now I know he's not he's not evangelical. No. I don't know that he knew when he said that, that that's a very specific. Yes. You know, that would be like it's a language in evangelicalism. Sure. And so the use of the word savior is very like, whoa, yeah. whoa. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that in a lot of ways they do look at that at it like that. And where I think the pundit, the punditocracy or whatever we call it these days is fueling um, the rationalizations that that Christians use. Well, first is what I was saying. Well, not first, but, you know, one aspect is certainly, you know, self-interest people want. There's nothing wrong with wanting your life to be how you want it. And right. I think that a lot of people, that's that's a core aspect of it. But the other is you have to keep it in that culture war. Um, it's a battlefield morality. Mm-hmm. As long as you keep it a life-or-death culture war, then battlefield morality exists, which is right. the idea that the guy comes around the corner, he hasn't even raised his weapon or looked at you, but you already have the right to shoot him in the head. Right. That doesn't work if you're not in a war. If right. you do that in everyday life, that's murder. Right. But suddenly it's not because you're in a war. So as long as they can make it a war where it's life or death, you can pretty much get away with anything. Yeah. And um, Ron, Bra- Ron Brownsey makes this point pretty well. He argues that... Trump is the first president, I would maybe carve out some room for Woodrow Wilson, but that's a different conversation. Uh, But Trump is the first president to run, to govern as a war president, not at war, (laughs) right? And and, and there's certain certain logic. That's awesome. Yeah, there's a certain logic that comes from being a war president is that, you know, it's one of the reasons why, I mean, I I think the right made some mistakes in being too reflexively defensive of George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons why we did, you know, was that, the attacks from the left during an actual war at the beginning of the war on terror were so outrageous and so disingenuous that you felt like, okay, am I really going to get into an argument about increasing Medicare spending when we've got this other thing going on? Yeah. And w- Trump's ability 
to turn the mainstream media and all of these and any competing institution into not just an opponent but an enemy gives people a permission structure to forgive any of his faults. I mean, yes. I am going to start cutting myself if I hear more people constantly talk about how Biden's gaffes are disqualifying, <laughs> but Trump's aren't. Hey, right? I mean, I, like, I, I'll, I'll prevent you from cutting yourself. I, I've got the totally opposite view, which is this is this is the race. For, like It was like it was designed. I'm going to call him a vessel soon, because if there was any race for Biden, of all people, who's known for gaffes to be the other candidate in. It's one it. where the uh, the opposition already made gaffes obsolete. Right. You know, like they're they're gone now. They, yeah. It's not even a consideration. I have no problem with the argument that Biden's gaffes are troubling, right? Or that Biden's memory and factual problems are troubling. I have a huge problem hearing that from people who don't find any of Trump's stuff troubling. I mean, they're, they're – to say they are both flawed human beings – and I don't think equally flawed. I don't think Biden is a particularly person of he, – he's he's flawed within normal parameters, mm -hmm. maybe at the fringe of it. Trump is flawed in, in different ways. There's not a moral equivalence thing here. But they're both flawed people. And, and to make it – to work from the premise that your guy is fine and the other guy is weird – you know, on, we're recording this on the day where people are still talking about how Trump took out a Sharpie and fixed the hurricane zone of probability thing so that Alabama would be included because he made up that Alabama was going to be hit by a hurricane. <laughs> I mean, it, it's all it's, – it's an episode of Veep all the way down yeah. no matter which direction you look in. Well, the only way that you can do it, what you're saying, is – because what I have found – and this makes it difficult at times. This isn't uncommon – you debate somebody, they move the goalposts. Yeah. But that's like standard operating procedure now because I'll get into a – I could get into a debate with somebody about gaffes and Biden's gaffes and then they'd say Biden's gaffes are way worse because blah, blah, blah. And at first they'll argue with me why Trump's gaffes don't matter as much. Eventually there's so many for me to choose from right. that they'll start backing into – but it doesn't matter anyway because we're at war. Right. And so then they just move right into the he's our general thing. Yeah. And specifically as it relates to evangelicals, I find that alarming. Yeah. Because uh, that's what people expected Jesus to come as was like on the mighty steed right. going to the capital to overthrow the Caesar and all that stuff. And that's exactly, you know, he came in on a donkey and they got murdered. Right. And now they're doing that again. They're saying, you know, he's the savior of the United States. Our nationality is now holy, and um, he needs to be protected at all costs. But as a Christian, I think what's most disturbing to me about the leadership, which is really the biggest problem in my opinion, uh, what's so disturbing to me about the leadership is like none of them are <laughs> – their their whole concept, given our faith, is that you know so-and-so needs to be saved. Let's mm -hmm. go – tell somebody the good news you know that's right. what we talk about and let's tell them the good news they're doing the opposite with trump they're gathering they're they're encircling him putting their hands on him and telling him he's exempt mm -hmm. and saying don't don't worry about all that stuff i mean robert jeffries of first baptist church literally said that he would run from a candidate that was like jesus like he would run from them <laughs> okay <laughs> and and said i think that's biblical OK. And um, he, he said that uh, the president has the power when when the people were talking about the saber rattling between him and Kim Jong-un, between Trump and Kim Jong-un. 
uh, Jeffrey said uh, that he's in, he as the president of the United States, uh, you know, and uh, he's been placed in his position by God and uh, he's been given the authority to he said to commit assassinations and and acts of evil, mm. literally acts of evil. This is a pastor who speaks to hundreds of thousands of people through his radio network mm-hmm. and his television network. He goes on Fox News and CNN and, and uh, MSNBC all the time. And his congregation is like 10,000 plus people. I used to go to that church. And he's telling not only all of them, but Trump himself, because he's on the evangelical advisory board. Don't worry about all that stuff that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Your position exempts you from that because our interests are more important. Yeah. So serve our interests, do whatever the heck you like, and it'll be fine. So who's looking out for Donald Trump's soul yeah. is my question. Yeah. It doesn't seem like anybody is because Falwell Jr. and the others, um, they've got just as many offenses. I, I would say, Frank, like I said, Franklin comes across a little more meek, mm-hmm. but it's almost more irritating, not only because of what a great example his father was, but that's sneaky a yeah. lot of times. So... How does this end? Like the rapture? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, let's whether he loses in 2020 or 2024. Forget future of conservatives or future Republicans. What's the future for um, sort of the organized evangelical community in, in the U.S.? Well, I think that um, there has to be a a shift in the church. Um, I don't think the shift can take like a lot of the times when we deal with cultural issues like this, people want to go to the government and then down, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the wrong way to do it. You have to start kind of from the ground up. So to me, why is this such a big issue? Because the same thing we were talking about earlier in social media is applying in evangelicalism, which is there's a, there's several leaders. When I was a kid, I went to First Baptist Church under W.A. Criswell. And I also went to Thomas World Baptist under Jerry Falwell Sr. Uh, now, Jerry had a bigger um, audience because he was on TV and et cetera. But the fact is, that there was a, if there was a big church in California, I wouldn't have even heard what this guy was, what that yeah. pastor was saying. Yeah. But now we've got a network that makes it possible for these evangelical leaders to sort of band together like their own little, you know, Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. group. And... Um, they're all on social media. Nazgul for Christ. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, and they're all, they're all, <laughs> I just say, well, look, Soren, maybe he did do that. But the point is, um, you know, but we, we've got these leaders that I think aren't being held accountable and are preaching a lot of bad theology. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason that's possible, social media is going to be what it is, is the megachurches. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, it's, it's all getting too big. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it needs to, there needs to be like a federalism of the Christian church mm-hmm. where it's fine to have a mega church, but your, your focus should be pushing your congregants into small groups, mm-hmm. 12 to 15 people who kind of do life together, mm-hmm. you know, um, that diminishes the possibility of cult-like influence from figures that are too large and gets people refocused on faith as faith and not partisanship mm-hmm. because these two things have to be separated. I I believe that there was no way one wasn't going to influence the other. When you bring something as big as faith to politics and not what it, the way that you used to bring faith to politics, which was just straight up theocracy, 
but instead you're bringing faith as a voter block with an influence in the way politics works today, one's going to affect the other. The short-term one is always going to ha- – I mean, like, that's what's right in front of people. Mm-hmm. So sort of inevitably, the short-term politics influenced the religion. So instead of religion coming to politics, politics came to faith. That has to change, and that can only change within the church. So I have this theory that – actually, I'm going to write about it at some point. I've written about it a little bit, I guess, but – that a lot of the – Trump is popular with Republicans. That's obviously true, right? The polling shows that. And um, that's not an especially strange thing, right? He's no. a Republican president right. and he's popular with Republicans. And he's hated by all the right people and in an era of negative partisanship mm-hmm. that – you know, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, I think that his approval rating among Republicans is artificially high because of this wartime president thing. W's approval rating among Republicans was artificially high because he was a wartime president and people were like – you know, rally around the commander in chief kind of function, particularly in your own party. And there's this phenomenon that's well documented in polling and social science that people are more sophisticated than we give them credit for. And when a pollster calls up and says, do you approve of Donald Trump? They understand that if they say no, that lends the other side a talking point. That is sort of that is aiding the enemy, even though they might have real reservations personally when you talk to them in real life as a friend they're like oh god i wish you would stop tweeting or this or that or the other thing or why can't he just you know just stay in his lane they're not gonna say that to a pollster Mm -mm. and so they get marked down as as approving when in fact they have much more ambivalent feelings about Mm -hmm. right and and that's the way it was about the iraq war for a long period of time where support for the iraq war particularly among republicans was much higher than i think it was in reality because saying you disapproved of it was, you know, not only giving in to the giving aid and comfort to the domestic enemy, which is the Democrats, but to like Al Qaeda, mm-hmm. and you were you were just going to like stick by your guy, right, and rally around the flag. But it has been amazing since W's left office, post Obama, and all that kind of stuff. It is very hard to find a lot of Republicans who, to the bitter end of the Bush administration, were saying they supported Bush or supported the war. Still with that position, everyone and in hindsight and all that, I get it. But I still kind of think that if Trump loses in 2020, which I still think is the most likely thing, depending, you know, I mean, obviously, Democrats have a gift for blowing it. But if Trump loses, you're going to see a lot of these people sort of like a winger's girlfriend in in stripes when. She's complaining that all you do is listen to those Tito Puente albums. And, and Bill Murray says, you know, one of these days Tito Puente is going to die. And you're going to say, I've listened to his stuff all my life and I loved it, right? <laughs> it works the other way around, too. There can be all these people who are going to go back sort of like the way Joe Scarborough sometimes does. And he points to the negative things he said back in the beginning when he was really supportive of Trump. Right. And you could see – so I'm, what I'm curious about – I mean, I think as a political matter, that's going to happen. You're going to have – the Lindsey Grahams and these guys say, hey, look, I always, you know, I always had mixed views of, on him, but he was getting things done and blah, 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 binary choice. But I'm more curious, like when you make a theological commitment that is supposed to have a time horizon longer than the next election, mm-hmm. how can the new king of the Hebrews or the new Cyrus or whoever he is supposed to be lose to Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders? I mean, that can't be part of God's plan. How do these pastors explain that do they explain it in a way that says oh my gosh the forces of evil and the culture war have triumphed and satan is in the saddle or do they say <laughs> well 
you know, it was a transactional thing, and he's gone, and we thank him for his... No, I think know. they keep it in the um, spiritual war uh-huh. language at that point. I don't think there's any going back at this point. I think that they switch up the... Um, because one of the one of the ways that religion can be abused, any faith really can be abused, is everything proves everything proves what that it's part of God's plan. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So if you got into the college you wanted, that was part of God's plan. If you didn't, that was part of God's plan. You know, it's easy to do that. And I think a lot of people do. So when it comes to if Trump was to lose, I actually think the culture war mentality it will get worse. I think it will get a lot worse. Yeah. And um, because honestly, Donald Trump thrives nowhere better than as a imaginary underdog. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he was setting up the concept of rigged election months before uh, the election sure. even happened. Well, that's because he thought he was going to lose. <laughs> right, well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we, uh, and this is one of the things that when people t- what you just said is one of the things that, you know, a lot of people have said, uh, aren't people going to be moving away from Trump? Um, I'm still not of the opinion that he's going to lose mm-hmm. because. In 2016, everybody was went nuts. We always talk about it, like the dumpster fire year and the memes with me in 2015, me in mm-hmm. 2016. And everybody thought he would lose. Mm-hmm. Like, so they went, we went that crazy and everyone thought he would lose. Now everybody knows he can win and it's 2020 and there's potentially two more uh, seats. Maybe one of them would just be a trade out like with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but who knows? Maybe like an actual mm-hmm. open, you know, it could be four, four or five by the time this guy leaves office. This is to a lot of evangelicals, the promised land, because despite decades of conservative philosophy being against enshrining the power of the Supreme Court and diminishing the power of the legislature, that's gone, like that's over now. We don't do that anymore. Now we argue on behalf of getting the right president and the right Congress in place to make sure that we can get the right justices in mm-hmm. because everything that happens that matters happens in the Supreme Court. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think that they will they will come out like nuts for him next year and win or lose is going to be um, evidence, more evidence in the culture war. Mm-hmm. So if he wins, it means our general has led us to yet another victory. If he loses, it'll be we've lost the battle, but now he's only served one term. You know, at first, I'm sure people, you know, he'll probably float the idea. I I may run again, you know, or whatever, but um, he probably won't. But they'll be on the hunt for somebody that's going to fight that way. I think what will also happen is the Bobby Jindals and the Scott Walkers, who've all been pretty quiet the last few years, they'll start coming back out of the woodwork Mm -hmm. and be like, let's can we get back to the old party now? Yeah. You know what I would love to see you write is. What would the Harriet Myers debacle look like under Trump? Yeah, because it would not have gone the same. They he but people went after Bush. Republicans went after Bush in a way that did not make it seem like they didn't support him anymore. But they pushed back on something he did, mm-hmm. and then he changed his tune, and then everything switched up. That would not happen today. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like Judge Janine, you know. Um, I, 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 I'm sorry, Justice Janine. Um, I, I, I go back and forth on that. I think that the institutions that have most successfully worked the transactional game um, are the Federal Society and the NRA. And the Heritage Foundation has done pretty well too. I think. Yeah, I mean the Heritage is in that mix. And but the, my point is, is that this 
and I'm not going to repeat because we're going long, but, you know, this is a longstanding problem I have is, is that the people who say they want a transactional relationship with them never want to push, never want to, like, stand up to them to make more beneficial transactions. But <laughs> right. but the thing is... I've always I've been asking, what is the terms of the transaction? Well, the, the, <laughs> one of the ones where he's agreed to is, like, you know, he, the reason why he came up with that list, which was I think was a good thing, was there were millions of... Republican voters who were open to voting for Trump, but they were just like, I'm just scared. What are you going to do with the court? And so he came out with this list and said, I'm pre-committing to this list and I'm going to that's going to be a red line for you guys. And I understand that. Same thing with abortion um, and same thing with guns. There were certain ones where he could be convinced that he couldn't be the liberal he was for most of his life on, you know, basically God, guns and gays or not maybe not gays, but God, guns and um, uh, judges mm -hmm. and uh, judges with a G. Yeah. <laughs> and um and 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 so he understood that transaction and he stuck to it. And um and so I I just you know my my part of my problem is that I I wish we would come up with more of those transactional demands of him rather than say that those are the only ones. But a lot of those Federalist Society guys if he actually appointed in the name of unity or something like that um a non-conservative I do think a lot of them would freak out because for them... But what would they do about the freaking out? They wouldn't do it publicly, would they? I, I, I kind of think that they... There's would. no I mean, coming back from that, you know? Yeah, I mean, but a lot of those guys have stayed... You know, I have a lot of friends who are in that sort of Federalist Society universe kind of thing. And I talk to them about what they think about Trump. And they're not huge fans of what he's doing, but they love what he's doing on the judges. And so they don't go out of their way to criticize him on other stuff because that's the thing that they care about most. If I, if if Trump really did betray them on that, I do think it's like if if Trump betrayed um, evangelicals on abortion, I mean, truly betrayed him on abortion, or as we've seen on guns, I do think that some of those guys would actually revolt. And what it would look like, I don't know. But more optimistic than I am. Yeah, because you know. I I see a lot of uh, the movement of rhetoric. I mean, like, I have said for a while now that tariffs and trade are are Trump's only true ideological I agree with that. positions. And I think that part of the reason goes back to what you were saying earlier about status. He knows a lot of big business guys. Uh, you know, the way a lot of people have described it to me was that he he wasn't he was kind of a joke amongst those people in terms yeah. of he was he was just so rugged or whatever. Um, those guys really want like intellectual property laws to change uh, to, to there to be enforcement of stuff in China. They're tired of China pushing people around and so on. And I think that part of it is like he told them, I'll take care of it, guys. I got this. I'm going to go take care of this. And so that's why he pushes so hard on it. But he is moving the Overton window on it to the point where I've got people saying, hey, he's doing it right. Like, this is how he should do it. And that was never a conservative position. Well, I agree. And, and the same with the XM Bank and, and other stuff, you know. And so I feel like, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe I'm Pollyannish about this, but I, I think one of the reasons why you can get away with it on trade is, first of all, China has gotten away with a lot of crap, right? And second of all, it is not a primary concern of a lot of people. It is an easy bauble for a lot of people to trade away in terms of intellectual consistency because they've never really cared that much about trade. Um but I agree with you. Look, I mean, he's bending – his presidency has bent a big chunk of conservatism in favor of, you know, national industrial policy. It's not just protectionism. I, I agree with that. I have a really hard time believing, though, that on abortion, 
on guns. He has nearly the kind of running room that he does on some of this economic stuff. And I could be wrong. No, I guess I guess my opinion. I know, but I guess my opinion is he won't ever have the opportunity for it to be so blatant. Like I'm going to sign a new law that that amends the constitution. Like he doesn't have that kind of power. And so, so to me, it's all about what's more likely to happen. He he could say something like he said in the election about Planned Parenthood. I think it's a great organization, or something like that. Or he could uh, say, actually, I like the Democrats' proposal on this. Or he's got an army of people that come up with rationalizations that he could never come out with, and they push it out there. And then by the end of it, it's not that they'll be saying, "I don't have a problem with uh, Trump." reversing his position on abortion and screwing us over, it will be them saying, I know it looks like he's screwing us over, but what he's actually doing is going to make it so there are less abortions. Yeah, no, I, I, I look, the capacity for some of these people to come up with rationalizations for stuff, I I agree with you. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. You know, I mean, I, I've been down that road. But I just, and I, I'm not saying that I'm optimistic for what a tr- post-Trump conservatism or Republican Party looks like, because I think so much damage has been done, and there's so many people who have to protect their bad investments intellectually. Which is funny because they think that's what what we're doing. Yeah. But I also – I think there's a reason why we have the phrase, the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's because mm-hmm. straws don't normally break camel's backs, right? It's the other stuff that's on the camel. And I don't think it's using a Sharpie on a, on a hurricane map that is going to cause a implosion or anything like that. But he's not becoming more powerful over time. He is becoming less powerful over time. And because the – there are – and the – you're maybe right that evangelicals will come out in droves, but suburban women won't. Right. And he has lost more supporters than he's gained as president. And historically, that doesn't get you reelected. Now, it, the Democrats could. Well, yeah. The problem is Democrats, all they had to do was not be crazy and they can't do it. Yeah, yeah no, I agree. They could, they could, you know, elect, you know, uh, Gorgon's head. I don't know. I mean, they could elect something crazy. And that person could do something crazy. Biden can always be counted on to possibility possibly do something crazy, but uh, it's not the way I would bet. Anyway, we got to wrap this up. Yeah, got yeah. Things to do, um, people to see, columns to write. But uh, Ben Howe, great to have you on. Absolutely, thanks for having me. The book again is the Immoral Majority: Why Evangelicals Chose Political Power Over Christian Values. Great to see you, man. Thanks. All right, so Ben has left the the, the studio, and um, I apologize. You know, every now and then we get these comments from people about how this is so much of a Never Trumper podcast, and even though I don't call myself a Never Trumper, and um, you know, and they couldn't or they couldn't handle all the anti-Trump stuff. We haven't done a lot of anti-Trump stuff in a while, and um, that's what the guy's book was about. And I'm not going to apologize for it, but I, you know, I know I'm going to get grief from people. What do you think of all that? I'm glad that you're not apologizing. No one apologizes for anything these days. That's right. Never explain, never apologize. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm sympathetic to his point of view. I am – I increasingly – I increasingly come down – you know, I'm going to – I'm planning on doing a big piece one of these days probably for the new venture about sort of – liberal fascism revisited and talking about what I got right and what I got wrong and, and what my, my regrets and my non-regrets, you know, and how the 
left is reacted to the book and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, one of the things is, and I've teased about this a few times in the past, is I still think ideas matter a lot and ideas are really, really important. But so many political conflicts, if you just tilt your head slightly, you can see that the, 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 the real issue is power or status or whatever, which is a form of power, and that the ideas are sort of lagging indicators that get sort of thrown on top of basically a, a, a power contest um, to rationalize the positions of the two sides or the three sides or whatever number of sides there are. And that's sort of how I view a big chunk of almost all of these contests is that whether you're talking about the Christian right or you're talking about you know the Republican Party or whatever institution – um, a big chunk of it is just trying to come up with winning rationalizations for why my team should be in charge and the other team shouldn't. But that's my my cynical view of the day. And uh, oh, so I teased uh, earlier uh, emotional stuff going on in my life. We had a health thing in my family, which we dealt with for the time being. Things are looking on the upside. Best to keep most of that, you know, uh, private. But the other news is that yesterday. Um, my wife and I went up to Boston to put my daughter on a plane. She is going to spend her entire junior year of high school in Spain. And it was, to put it lightly, emotionally devastating for us. And I uh, felt a little bit like sending her off to college. Um, lots of, you know, second guessing about whether we did the right thing. Um, lots of arguments with my daughter about all of it. But she is now in... Spain and uh, my wife and I are premature empty nesters for a while, um, and uh, we're we're kind of like the we're like, kind of like walking wounded about it emotionally, um, sort of hard to process. But uh, I know people think that we're all about my dogs, but the reason why I don't tweet and talk about my daughter as much is because we want to give her her own life um, and not make her some sort of football. And we've seen what happens when you when some of my friends post pictures of their kids on on social media as bad things happen to them from bad people so we wanted to spare a lot of that but anyway that's sort of the one of the things that's going on in my life that's uh that's taken an adjustment so um anything else that we uh anything going on in your life jack that we should be talking about i've been stewing bitterly about uh the fact that i did not weigh in on uh, the opening of the last episode about Beatles things. Uh-huh. It just felt impolitic, and I was honestly a little nervous because I was around a true uh, a true master. Uh-huh. Um, but also, I reviewed for listeners who are listening to this out of sequence. That's the Charlie Cook episode that we did at the beginning of the week. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I I have I saw yesterday, which is a movie that was almost algorithmically designed for me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, a work of alternative universe, uh, science fiction, sort of. Sort of. Uh, uh, about the Beatles, whose main character is named, <laughs> named Jack, uh, and it came out the weekend, came out the day before my birthday, uh-huh. uh, or two days before. So I saw, I had to see it. Like, I had to see it. And I reviewed it for... The review is on Ricochet's website. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, I I I enjoyed it, but as long as I didn't think about it too much, because it really didn't make. The more you thought about, it, the more you're like, wait a minute, 
the Beatles don't exist, then how can Coldplay exist? Right. Without like any differences. And so if you think about it too hard, it's like a massive insult to the Beatles if everything could be basically the same except there were no Beatles songs. Also, no. Yeah, so, so we should explain for listeners, um, you know, I don't try to do explanatory stuff the way Pod does about, you know, um, virtually every proper noun. But uh, the movie yesterday is a be- the spoiler alert. The plot is that there's some unexplained hiccup where all the power goes out at the exact moment the protagonist of the movie is in an accident. And when he wakes up in the hospital, he wakes up in a universe that is identical, except like, you know, when some people have strokes and they like forget the letter H, <laughs> um, the planet has basically forgotten or does not, does not know that the Beatles ever existed. The Beatles has been wiped. There's no Wikipedia page. You can't Google the Beatles without getting pictures of Beatles up. And this guy then pretends to have written all of the Beatles songs and then goes forth from there. And this is, yours is a basically space-time continuum continuity problem issue? Uh, not, not so much that. I mean, I accept that that I, – I obviously have no – I accepted that, that such a thing could happen um, for the sake of the movie. But it just bothered me that they didn't really take that idea any further except for admitting – that Oasis also wouldn't exist if the Beatles never existed, <laughs> uh, which is fair. But other than that, there is really no difference in the course of popular music, or seemingly no difference, aside from the fact that the Beatles never happened, which seems like a massive insult to the Beatles in a movie that was, was meant to be sort of a tribute to them. Yeah, it's a bizarre inconsistency to say that this was the most important, fantastic music ever written, but if it disappeared entirely, it would have no noticeable effect on human civilization. Yeah. Um, but I'll, I will go ahead and do what Charles Cook did yesterday and list my five favorite Beatles songs just for uh-huh. public consumption. Uh, they are di- very different from his. I'm apparently very besotten with the the LSD phase of the Beatles for reasons that listeners of the show can... Speculate. Yeah. Uh, I am the walrus. I am the Eggman. They are the Eggman. Across the universe. Strawberry Fields Forever. Tomorrow Never Knows. It's all too much. Those are my favorite. Interesting. All of those are about about or inspired by drugs in some way or another. Now, when you say favorite, you're not claiming they're the best. You're just saying. No, they're my favorite. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's what the problem with a lot of these sort of lists is that if you ask for the best, then you put your own feelings, sort of suspend them somewhat, become a critic rather than a fan, you know? Yeah, it's a good thing I don't have feelings. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's the problem that David French never gets into because he never stops being a fan. He's never a critic. <laughs> he, no, he is a critic. He he said – he tweeted uh, in reply to something uh, Charlie Cook said on Twitter that the Beatles are overrated. Did so, really? yeah. All right. Maybe I'm just thinking about movies with um, underwater laser battles. Oh, 
I, I saw Aquaman, Aquaman, by the way. Uh-huh. <laughs> you say it funny. Um, on, a, on an international flight, which I think is the ideal way to watch it. Uh-huh. Um, it looked pretty. It made no sense. Yeah. Uh, but it was a great way to pass two and a half hours on a plane. Um, uh, did you see this Bruce Springsteen movie? The one about him and his, like, barn? No, no, no. I'm sorry. It's a, it, oh, it oh, seems... Blinded, oh, oh, the the Blinded by the Light. Yeah. Yeah, this bizarrely, like, similar movie to yesterday. Yeah, because, like, Sonny Bunch said that he hated it, and I asked him on Twitter whether or not he saw yesterday because I wanted, like, a benchmark, you know, yeah. what is... And he hadn't seen yesterday, so I'm just kind of curious because... The trailers, which obviously are not ideal to judge a movie from, kind of make it look like it would be entertaining the way yesterday was, but I could be wrong. I just want to know if if the kid meets Bruce Springsteen and if Bruce plays himself or if they get some actor to play him. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's less of a sci-fi angle to uh Yeah. So. Which makes me less interested. Yeah. Um, no sci-fi, no drugs, no bueno. So as part of the incredibly emotionally draining last week that we had – we were trying to check off all these boxes. That's why I took my daughter to the amusement park, you know, that uh, Charlie and I talked about roller coasters. Um, we also went to a late showing of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, um, which my daughter loved the book. And I hate scary movies. I just do. I mean, and uh, so you're going to add in some crazy sound effect of me shrieking or something like that. No, I, but, I won't. <laughs> um, but um, uh, the I, I, I hate that. Like, I'll look, I think The Shining is great. I think uh, Exorcist is great. There's some scary movies that I think are legitimately great movies. But I hate that uh, scare you out of your or shock you out of your seat for shock value's sake. I don't like that feeling. It's sort of like my wife doesn't like certain rides because she hates that feeling in the pit of her stomach when you're, you go to zero G. I hate that being startled feeling. I get full of anxiety about it. And I just don't find it an enjoyable way to spend a night in the theater. But... It was, you know, for for that kind of thing, it had its moments. It was actually kind of kind of a fun movie. So um, I just want to know, based on the trailers, there was a I saw a high school kid in a letter letter uh, Letterman jacket. Uh huh. Do kids wear Letterman jackets anymore? That's what it's I. It's a good know. question. I don't know. I feel like that's a trope that now is restricted only to movies. Um, I also wonder. Um, like I have a friend who raises his kids. He lives in a. I don't mean this pejoratively, but a flyover state. I just don't want to name which one. And, uh, and quote you can fly over any state, you know. That's true. But like he lives in the, the, the sort of Midwestish South. And, uh, in a, and he says that, you know, his kids' high school, almost all of these crazy controversies that you have on the East Coast just aren't there. And the kids still are going to high school like it's a normal high school and you don't have freak outs over transgender bathrooms and all of the rest. So I just wonder if like in the people actually do wear those kinds of varsity jackets, just you don't see them in sort of on the East Coast anymore. Yeah, I but growing up, I never I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is pretty, I think, pretty Midwestern, although there are wrong people out there who dispute that for some reason. I never saw anybody wearing a letter, a varsity letter jacket. Really? Never. Interesting. Uh, maybe that's just a weird product of my upbringing, but we'll find out, I guess, after this when people start tweeting. I, I think you're the weird product of your upbringing. <laughs> um, Thanks. But uh, um, all right. So uh, 
Things have been uh, crazy busy for me on the new venture front. Uh, more info about that uh, soon. If you want to sign up for the G file or for updates from us, uh, please go to Reagan35x.com. That's Reagan35x.com. That website may not exist that much longer. So um, at least you'll be able to say in the future that you are one of the original Reagan35xers you know, which is sort of like the early joiners. Um, and who knows, there may be even swag one day associated with that. And uh, we really appreciate the um, continued uh, good word of mouth that we get from this podcast. Jack informs me that we've passed a crucial benchmark, right? We, um, the post-National Review remnant, do I have this right, Jack? Passed a million downloads? Yeah, just when I predicted it would happen. This is all... This has all happened before. <laughs> um, all is proceeding as I have foreseen. I know this is uh, doesn't sound all that exciting and all the rest, but it's 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 nice news. You know, the Bulwark. I think they just passed five million downloads, but they have like they've been around. Don't don't worry about other people. You no, know, I know, I know, I know. Well, I I work. This is like I've burnt my ships. I've done. You know, I've, I've made a major commitment to doing this thing. I have to be a something of a cheerleader for this thing that I've you know set a course for the rest of my professional life on so i love the bulwark i listen to it um and uh but uh i think that's a great benchmark It'd be great if when would you predict our next million download mark would our two million download mark was mark it down dude um uh it'll happen before well assuming the status quo which is always dangerous as uh george orwell once warned us if, if the circumstances of this podcast remained exactly the same, then it would happen, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks before the end of the year. Uh-huh. Um, maybe like just before before DC depopulates for, for Christmas and whatnot. Yeah. So straight line projections into the future. As, that's the oral reference you're getting to at, uh-huh. which comes from uh, one of my favorite essays, Second Thoughts on James Burnham, have their flaws. And I have, I in modest confidence think that we will hit 2 million downloads by, before Thanksgiving. Okay. So. Um, you, you have more, you have more information. There's an information asymmetry here. There is indeed. There is indeed. And, and that's the way God designed it. Um, anyway. Uh, thanks again to everybody. Sorry for the rambling, and uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.